turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Happy New Year 2024. We will pick up where we left off in 2023, preaching through chapters at a time, highlighting the greater emphasis of those chapters throughout the book of Acts. And this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read it here in just a moment. A couple things, though, I want to share. Um, I'm thankful to tell the church that our Christmas offering was $32,000. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate that greatly and appreciate uh, your love for Christ, your love for this ministry, and uh, that is, was exceedingly above all that we asked or thought. Not that we had a specific number designed, but we certainly were hoping to get 10,000, and that is the goodness and grace of God that that was tripled. Um, I also want to tell you this before I read Acts chapter 8. Pastor Alex uh, spent a day in the hospital this last week. Um, he has injured his back. Pastor Alex, at a, a young age, has already endured three, or I'm sorry, two major surgeries on his back. And so they're going to be, he is home, which we're, we're glad for. Um, they will be calling the doctor in the morning, and hopefully they'll get an appointment in short order to um, decipher and decide as how that doctor, uh, based on his prognosis, how they'll move forward. So just pray for Pastor Alex and Bethany as she cares for him. And obviously we're hoping, as, as he does, that he doesn't have to have surgery, but uh, that's why Pastor Alex and Bethany aren't here this morning. All right, Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he had did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or were lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying, that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward uh, the south to, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This was a desert place. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and to sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as the they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he was preaching the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Church, would you bow your heads with me as we approach our God? Heavenly Father, now as we open your word and as we look upon Acts chapter 8, we pray and ask that you will lead us and open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And then by your grace, move in your church, Lord, we ask that we would live for the honor and the glory of God alone. Once again, Lord Jesus, we give you thanks how you have worked in Christ Community Church, which just another demonstration was evident in the large Christmas offering we were able to receive to continue to further the preaching of Christ and the gospel from this church. We certainly would ask, Lord, freshly for our dear brother, and Pastor Alex, that you will um, heal his back, Lord, so that he will not have to 
endure another surgery. We submit him uh, to your care, knowing, God, that you do things all good and well. We pray for these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A couple things that any church of any generation, and particularly for those who, who pastor when preaching Christ or dealing with aspects of the gospel, you deal with, with two extremes. There is, there is one extreme which will morph people into legalism, which by the technical term of the New Testament would be to add anything to the gospel outside of the person and the work of Jesus to save them. And then there's, on the total opposite end of that spectrum, would be those who are um, under like a, a license type of mentality that grace is so free it doesn't matter what your life looks like post-faith. And you can do or sin any way that you would like to. And in both of those truths, whether they're legalism or license, are perversions of the gospel. And, and I, would, I would guess to say throughout the history of the church over the past 2,000 years, there's probably been a greater struggle to legalism because legalism really goes to the pride of men to want to think they're better than they really are in terms of how how the Bible defines them. And, and I watched a, um, I, I don't know, about a year or so ago, whenever it was, certainly R.C. Sproul was still alive. Um, I watched a, uh, a round table with him, and, and R.C. Sproul suggested this, and I have found this specifically to be true for me as one who has pastored now approaching uh, 35 years of my life that there are four categories of people. There are only two groups of people, those who belong to Jesus and those who do not belong to Jesus, but I really thought what he said here made sense. There are people who are genuinely saved, converted to God, and they, they know that they're saved. They have the complete and full assurance of that. There are people who are lost, they maybe even have heard the gospel, and they would admittedly say they are lost, that they have rejected Christ. And those, those two groups are kind of obvious. But I thought this was very interesting, and it certainly is fitting for the passage that we're going to look at today. He, he, he talks about two other groups of individuals because we're going to look at a contrast of genuine belief over against spurious faith in Acts chapter 8. He said there are those who have been genuinely converted by God, but they are weak in faith and they suffer with doubting, okay, which causes them too often to, because they're weak in faith, to to question their salvation and the assurance of it, but they are yet genuinely saved because they would say that Jesus is the one who has forgiven them of their sin, yet they, they struggle, they suffer along. And, in, and I can tell you this throughout uh, my time uh, as a, just as a pastor, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Ultimately, we know that the it's the assurance that the Spirit gives because we ourselves don't give the assurance of genuine belief. We, we call out the promises of the truth of the gospel and, and it's the Holy Spirit that assures you. And yet there's a great uh, hurt, I can tell you this, and difficult helping people to strive with and overcome being weak in faith. And then there's a more fearful um, state. There are people who are deceived who think they are Christians and they are holding to false assurance because they do not know Jesus. And, you know, I, I kind of wanted to set both of those things at the front 
because to be honest with you, okay, just to be transparent, I don't like to preach about this from this perspective. I neither want to put doubt on those who have genuinely confessed Jesus. And Lord knows I never want to give false assurance to someone who doesn't know Jesus. And so I'm going to call you into this text with me today as we look at a contrast of what I'm, I've entitled Two Shifts, the portrait of spurious faith over against the portrait of genuine faith. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, lived in the time of Christ. He himself did not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. Yet nonetheless, he says this in one of his recordings. The followers of Christos, meaning the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, are those who receive the truth with pleasure. And I loved that when I read that uh, a couple of months ago. In the text that we find ourselves here in, in Acts chapter 8, literally, it mentions twice upon faith those having a joy. There is a pleasure, a joy-filled pleasure to them, both to those who are being converted in Samaria and to the Ethiopian eunuch himself. Those who are redeemed genuinely by Jesus have a joy that resonates in your soul. And I can only explain this as a gift that God gives. Um, when we're looking at Acts chapter 8, the gospel is expanding. Okay, it's, it's moving out as Jesus told the disciples he said it would. It would go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the globe. And I'm going to spend some time with that in Acts chapter 10 because it'll, it'll help us to like narrow down the 28 chapters of Acts to understand what it's fully about. But the predominant discussion of Acts chapter 8 is, as I've already stated, we preach Christ here because the gospel is the most essential message for anyone's life. And this would go to the category where the Bible says, from the least to the greatest. To the simplest of people, to the most renowned and supposed brilliant people of the world, or richest people of the world, we preach Christ because the gospel is the most essential message for everyone. That's why we do it. And when we begin to look at these portraits here, I want you to understand this, that, that Jesus is the gospel offer. One takes, possesses, and knows that they have Jesus and they have entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. The gospel offer does not offer money. It does not offer health. It does not offer a better life. That's the American gospel. That works in concert with the American theme. That is not the gospel. Because the gospel works in Afghanistan. The gospel works in Iran. The gospel works in China. And most of those people that are converted are not going to have much money. They certainly, many of them are going to die in disease. And they don't get a better life now. That's a lie. And I think your own clarity of understanding what the scripture is about and what the gospel is about and your relationship to Jesus has got to be torn away from the American gospel 
because the American gospel is sending people to hell. The gospel is a promise. God sent his son into the world to save sinners. Salvation only comes on God's terms, not our perception of what Jesus is. Tooth fairy, Santa Claus, or, or anything else. When, we, when we're thinking about Jesus in relationship to those terms, the Bible is everything that Jesus says he is, and what the word says he is, it's nothing more, nor is it anything less. But that is what somebody is taking in when they're taking Jesus in terms of, of saving them. The gospel is the good news. And it's the good news that Christ has died for sinners. And man, are we thankful because we sin. And it doesn't matter if we've been saved for five minutes or 50 years, like, like my case. It, the tenderness and the sweetness of the gospel is understanding, man, I, I belong to Jesus. That, that's, that's what's important for me. The gospel is not merely the benefits of missing hell or gaining eternal life. Those though are truths that are tied to the gospel. But the gospel believed in genuine faith knows that it is eternal life with Jesus. And with those who belong to Jesus. That's what eternity will look like. And so we preach Jesus from every text of the scriptures. Some are more clear and easy. But we preached Jesus from every text of the scriptures or pericopes because Jesus is in every text. And Jesus is the essential element for all of our lives. And it doesn't matter what stage of life that you're in, whether you're young or whether you're old. When Christ is preached, when the gospel is given accurately, though weakly because it comes from, from frail pots, as Paul will call them, in, he'll call the messengers of God that, frail pots in Corinthians. But when Christ is preached, God awakens dead hearts to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ alone. Jesus is the essential, primary offer of the gospel. And you get nothing else out of this for yourself, you want to take that away. But, of course, we want to dive in and begin to look at this portrait. In the order that it's given here... Um, we see that we've moved forward, right? The gospel is expanding. Philip now has gone down into Samaria. And in verses 9 through 25, we get what I've, I, I call a, a portrait of spurious faith. For those of you that may not know what the word spurious means, um, it, it's they... They look like they're saved, but they're not. It's not genuine. It's nominal. It's spurious because it's not real. And this is interesting that the Bible tells us the, that the gospel now is expanded. Because through the ministry of Jesus, Jesus has bound Satan. And this dark world that we live in now is being invaded by the power of the gospel because the kingdom of God has come. And so Philip finds himself here in Samaria, which was largely a demon-infested place. And that's really, when you're reading those verses 4 through 8, is what's being described there. The miraculous nature of the gifts 
the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed is going into this, this dark, demon-infested town and the, and the villages and the, and, the, and the towns of Samaria, and man, it's bringing back droves of success. This Simon, who's known as the magician, and, and if I could just say this, you have an ESV Bible, we, we know that we're, we preach from the ESV. It's very deceptive in the ESV Bible because it says the Simon, the magician, believes. And that will cause people to think that's genuine faith, and he is not a, one who is a genuine possessor of Christ. This Simon the magician had captivated the city. He had this large following. He had uh, the people of Samaria, basically, you know, to, to coin a phrase, in, in his palm. And the text tells us that he had captivated and deceived them for a long time because he was, he was very clever he desired power, and he did so, uh, created deceptions through the use of magic. But it's pretty clear that what Simon de uh, desired here was power. He loved power because power brought him money. He loved the attention. Look at verse 10. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God is called great. Boy, you're a God, Simon. You are great. You have great gifts. And so he held court for a long time with these people. And the people feared him who were, if you want to call it, you know, his own disciples, like a God. And man, here comes Philip, because the gospel is being expanded through the persecution that's going on in Jerusalem, where earlier in Acts chapter 8, the Bible tells us that the apostles had stayed back. Peter is preaching in Samaria, and he's utilizing miraculous gifts, again, that we'll talk about in, in Acts chapter 10, and many were converted. And I want to say this before we move forward in, in looking at this Simon the Magician, um, I think God in the early church was doing unusual things, right, for, for time and history. Now, now, we consistently embrace that message of Christ and the preaching of the gospel, but if I could be honest, I mean, I, I, I'll be 64 here soon, and I've heard this text where a lot of preachers will pass guilt on the congregation that we're not sharing Christ enough. If we were, we'd have a revival like this. And, you know, they wind up everybody's hearts and get 10 verses of just as I am and just get them down the aisle and stuff them with a card and tell them they're saved. Um, but, but in the text, I think there's unusual things. Of course, we should embrace the fact as followers of Jesus, we want to preach the gospel. I want everyone that's in my life to know I'm a follower of Jesus, and I want them to know Jesus. And so I don't even tell people most times that I'm a pastor. And I don't tell them that I'm a pastor, though I've been a pastor more than half of my life, not because I'm ashamed of being a pastor. I want them in being exposed to my life that don't know me to look at me and say, wow, this dude. He's kind of a Jesus freak. Yeah, that's the goal. Because I want, them to know, I want them to know Jesus, man. Because Jesus is the essential message of life. And so what takes place here is through this mass amount of conversions, this is kind of dipping into you know, to Simon's war chest. What's going on, man? These... these some of my converts. And so this arrogant dude gets wind of this and, and he begins to see in going and, and getting next to Philip some of these meetings that are taking place. And then it's clear, and I, I want to point this out to you, 
so that you see this. Verse 9 says, or I'm sorry, verse 13, as Philip, as, as Philip had preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of the Lord Jesus, it says of Simon himself, he believes, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Wow, we got him down the aisle and wound him up. That's not what's taking place here, okay? But what he does is he attaches himself to the church. He's on the inside now. He certainly is inquisitive. And as this good news of Samaria is going forward, the apostles back in Jerusalem catch wind of it and they send Peter and John because this becomes the pattern from the early New Testament. As the gospel is expanded into the globe, just as Jesus said it would, and that the kingdom of God would press forward as a kingdom of light into the darkness of the world and conversions took place, then the apostles would establish churches. So, Peter and John get down there. We need to establish another church. The church of Jerusalem is the first church. And they're going to go down there. And, of course, they begin to interact with Philip. And it is Peter himself that gets connected to Simon the Magician. This looks fantastic. This looks spectacular. And it really was for the most part. But when we get a closer view of this, we find from verse 18 that Simon desires power. Look at verse 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through on the laying of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money. Simon desired power. He wanted the power of God, but he did not want the Son of God. The gospel truth that way remains. Because taking Jesus is not going to bring you money necessarily. It's not going to give you better health. It's not the gospel. Peter responds. And, and we get, I mean, this is, this is intense. It's, it's stark. I, I don't think we want to miss this because even in your English Bible, it, it give, it's set in with, with an exclamation. Look at this. Peter looks and peers into Simon, verse 20, and says, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for you, your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, be it possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. That word, perish, You've heard that word perish before. It's the exact same word perish in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Lost people. Lost people, when they die, they perish. Perish is a term that is used for lost people. Parish is a term of the gospel. Dear friends, some of you might be sitting in here and your life is headed. You're going to perish. You're going to perish. Because you haven't believed in, in, with a desire to take Jesus. You want the benefits of the gospel. Simon wants the benefits of the gospel, but he doesn't want Jesus. That's not the gospel. He wants this power. He wants to do the miraculous. He's enamored with, with the emotion of what's overwhelmingly taking this town as the king.
kingdom of Dwight is pressing into this demonic infested city. When Peter looks at Simon and he says, may your money perish with you, what Peter is, is saying is, your money will perish along with you in, in hell. And, and I want you to get that. He's not being mean. It's actually the most loving thing that he could do. He's making a gospel appeal to him because it has become self-evident though he has said the words and gone to the waters of baptism, he does not possess faith in Jesus. He wants power. He wants money. Verse 21, uh, Peter says to him, your heart's not right with God. Well, listen, every believer's heart is right with God because they possess the righteousness of Christ in them. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. Surely we do. We're awaiting the perfect day of the redemption of our bodies. But your heart, church, is right with God because you have confessed faith in Jesus. You have the righteousness of Christ. Verse 23. Look at verse 23. He says, I have seen that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon's heart was bitter. And here's what it was bitter about as he got next to these people by believing and baptizing. He was bitter that they had a larger following than him. It's, it's a loss of opportunity, Right? His hands are no longer getting greased by the profitability of a larger, a larger group of people. He, he shows a sense of remorse. But the remorse, when he tells Peter, please pray that this thing not happen to me. The remorse isn't a remorse that translates into repentance. It's a remorse like Judas got before he, before he killed himself. Judas Iscariot when it hit him that this whole kingdom of God thing wasn't just a physical thing, that, that Jesus had died and, and he was no longer going to be like this high guy, Judas Iscariot, in, in the reign of Jesus on the earth and, and, the, and the Jewish nation would take over Israel over the Roman domination. He had remorse, loss of opportunity. Along with this, the text tells us that his heart was in the bond of iniquity. He heard, please listen to this, he heard about the judgment of the gospel. That if you reject Jesus, you will be condemned. He wanted to escape judgment, but Simon the magician did not want Jesus. And so, Peter tells him, your heart is in the bond of iniquity. Sin has gripped your heart. And joy is not manifested from your heart in those who are genuinely converted like them. It's just, you don't want to be condemned and you've lost an opportunity. Simon the magician wanted power. He had a desire to gain wealth. His heart was not right with God. He was condemned to perish in eternal punishment. He had remorse. But no doubt, probably even a form of conviction of sin. But those two things alone do not translate to genuine repentance. Though they are always a part. Of genuine repentance. You see, in the gospel offer, when someone comes under the conviction of their sin and the remorse within them that they have offended a holy God just by their mere presence, it is that heart gripped in genuine repentance to turn them 
to our merciful God's only offer, which is in his son. That's the gospel. Spurious faith is all throughout the New Testament. I mentioned to you Judas Iscariot. In Matthew chapter 13, in the parable of the sower, there are those who get the seed from rocky ground with for a moment there is joy. For a moment in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, but then the persecution of being known as a Christian or the following of the way, as it's called in the book of Acts, that you are attached to Jesus causes those people to turn away from Jesus. They appear to look like believers. They are not. In John chapter 2, there's another example of false belief. Jesus, of course, is doing all these miracles, and, and, and the text tells us in John chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, that many believed in his name. And then in verse 24, it says, Jesus does not give himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. They wanted the goodies of the gospel. They wanted the benefits of the gospel. But they did not want Jesus. Because Jesus is the gospel offer. So of course, most often when the Bible speaks of belief, it's speaking of genuine belief, but you always want to notice the context, of course, here. Then there is Simon the magician. And other cases I could offer you as well. There's Demas, who's associated with the church, and then he turns his way to the world. The love of the Father's not in him. Now, I always want to be faithful to the text, right? And I certainly would want to preach that text in case there's someone in that fourth category that is like, oh yeah, I, I think I'm a Christian, but you're, you're living on false assurance. And at the same time, I want to plead to you, I'm not wanting to cause doubt upon those who have genuinely believed, but guess who's the divider of all of that? It's the Holy Spirit, who is testifying to each of one of us right now in this room and letting us know, do we genuinely belong to Christ or not? And so I beg of you, as that's going on for you, you want to relate with God because he knows your heart and mind better than you. And you want to come to Jesus by faith because now we're going to look at the portrait of genuine faith as we move quickly through this. The Ethiopian is a eunuch. Moms, dads, you can explain eunuch. Um, but the Bible tells us he's a eunuch, and here's the reason why. He's a treasurer. He's a treasurer in, in Ethiopia, right, to, to the queen. And, of course, all people that lived in the palace, people who were of high regard, they, if they were male, they became eunuchs so as not to um, impregnate others. What I get out of this text, I think, is pretty clear. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And so we know from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost has come. This Ethiopian eunuch is a proselyte Jew. And it's through this context, he now is headed back to Ethiopia. And he's obviously reading the Bible. And he gets converted to Christ here. Now, before we look at the examination of this. This is what I love about this. An early church father writes that there was an outbreak of Christianity in Ethiopia and in northern Africa, and the early church fathers attested that to the Ethiopian eunuch taking the gospel back to his home and sharing Jesus. And you know what? This was my experience. It was my experience with my siblings, my parents. Those who genuinely get converted to Jesus, they want to tell others. 
And I don't care if you're extroverted or introverted. How, in, how could I possibly take Jesus as my Lord and Savior and hide it under a bushel? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. No, because it brought joy. No, because it's the most essential message in life because it's God's message. And no, because I want to see others come to know Jesus. That's the normal fruitful progression of genuine faith as those who are converted to Christ. And just a side note to this, Irenaeus, so you can get a picture of this. Irenaeus was bros with Polycarp, who was bros with the Apostle John. So we're talking about dudes that, like, rub shoulders to shoulders together. At least Polycarp and John did, and then Polycarp did with, with Irenaeus. That might not mean much to you. I thought it was awesome. And it certainly makes sense to this text. He gets into this gospel conversation. The gospel conversation goes from verse 29 through 35. Pastor Mike Shampoo read from our text this morning. That's the text he was reading. And, and, and it gives us this little section. Please follow this. Because even in every pericope, it may not explain everything about the gospel. But what it does give us about the gospel gives us some key points. Because Philip looks at him and in genuine humility because he loves Jesus. says, hey, do you, do you, do you understand what you're reading? And the poor Ethiopian is in his chariot. The dude was a, you know, a, a possession. He said, man, would you come up and sit with me? And he goes, how can I know unless someone guide me? His heart's been humbled. He's been reading the word of God that converts sinners. Ooh, yes, the word of God converts sinners. And he's been reading about a suffering servant. And, and he goes, man, who? He looks, he looks at Philip and says, who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And then Philip uses Isaiah 53 and he preaches to him about Jesus. And then it, it tells us that he uses the scripture to, to, to tell him about Jesus. And the scriptures would have been the Old Testament, other sections about Jesus. And here's why, because the scriptures are Christ-centered. In all of their being. We have one book. Unified. That tells us. The, the beauty. Of Jesus. And man is he beautiful. He's letting him know. That God is holy. That we are sinful. And this Jesus of Nazareth was crucified so that he could have life with him. And so the Ethiopian eunuch is reading and his, his heart begins to be broken. And it's broken over his own sin. He's not comparing his life to anyone else. This guy's, this guy's got a place of position. No, it, it, it's moving in him as the Spirit is moving in him. And he's broken in his sin and, he, and he's come to realize that he's offended God. And this suffering servant that's obvious to him has suffered for sin. He now hears the words from Philip. It's Jesus. And you can be forgiven of all of your sin. If you'll turn to him by faith. This conviction that you've come under. This remorse is now turning your heart in repentance. To grasp and take hold of the merciful act of God. Which is found in his son Jesus. Who by his life, death and resurrection saves people. Glory. Simon the magician set up against the Ethiopian eunuch. Dear friends, church, the gospel is not just the benefits of the gospel, though they are true. I want to miss hell. I don't want eternal punishment. But because I've taken Jesus by faith and faith alone, 
I will have life with Jesus in eternity. And I'll get to be with his church from all the ages. Genuine faith wants Jesus. And the church, though mocked, scourged, tattered, and weak across the globe, guess what? Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. And nothing will keep him from bringing his bride to himself and making her new. So for 2024, church, may we run with Jesus with endurance. Let's pray. Father, now as we move to look at and to share in your table with God's people, we pray that you will give us a foretaste of what's ahead because we know this merely is a prefigurement to what we will do with you on that day, the final day. When Jesus, you return, resurrect the dead, judge all the living and the dead, and following the judgment of the wicked, you'll turn your attention to what the Bible describes as a wedding. And dear Lord, we, we understand why the picture is there at that, because even for human beings that live on the earth, a wedding is a place of a grand celebration. And we look forward, Lord, to that final celebration. And yet now, as Christ resonates in our soul, which brings us joy, may we feast at this table and give thanks. We ask in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.